ओनो मित्र संवरुण सन्नो सन्न इंद्रो बृहस्पति सन्नो विष्णुक्रम नमो ब्रह्मणे नमस्ते वायो वायमेव प्रत्यक्ष ब्रह्मसी प्रत्यक्ष ब्रह्म वदिष्यामि सत्यम वदिष्यामि तन्मामवतु तद्वक्तारमवतु अवतुमाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशाशा
the very substratum of the entire creation. It is not a small self. The true nature of the self is the one, that is, the substratum of the entire creation. What is meant by substratum? That from which the creation arises, that by which the whole creation is sustained, unto which the creation goes back. Imagine that is the dimension of the self. To that self, Ashray, I take refuge in that self, meaning I surrender myself to the self. I seek the grace of the blessing of the self, Avishta Siddhe, for the attainment of that which is cherished, which is desired. <coughs> what is desired is liberation, or with reference to the composition of the text, what is desired is that the text be completed without any obstacles, and that there be no uh, doubts, vagueness, or falsehood with reference to the composition of the text or understanding of the text. Ashray, I take refuge of the self. Who is the self again? Akhandam, one that is unbroken, undivided, indivisible. <clears throat> There's no division like inert, sentient, one self, another self, self that is one, undivided, free from all the dualities, free from all the diversity. There is one in and through all the diversities and dualities. Satchidanandam, that is the Sat of the nature of existence, Chit of the nature of awareness, Ananda of the nature of fullness, Avang Manasagocharam, and that which is beyond the words and the speech, <coughs> meaning that which cannot be comprehended by the words or speech, or that which cannot be limited by a word or a speech, or, or the mind, or the thought. <coughs> so that which is beyond the scope of both the thought as well as the word, that because of which the word is, that because of which the thought is. This is how Kyanopanishad describes. <coughs> that which cannot be comprehended by the mind, but that because of which the mind comprehends. That which cannot be revealed by the word, but that because of which the word reveals. That is the self. <coughs> self says this to that, I take refuge unto the self. This is the first verse of invocation. There is the second verse also of the prayer, wherein the author offers a prayer to the teacher. Again in this tradition, the worship to the teacher has been considered to be extremely important. It is said in one of the Upanishads, Yasya Deve Parabhaktihi Yatha Deve Tathagurau Tasyete Kathita Kshartaha Prakashante Mahatmanaha there is an Upanishad called Shvetashvatar Upanishad. And after completing the entire teaching, at the end of the teaching, the teacher says to the disciples, Yasyadeve Parabhaktihi, the one who has Parabhaktihi, the supreme or the highest devotion for the Lord, whom one is seeking, Yasadeve Tathagurau, and the one who has the devotion of the teacher, of the same magnitude or the order as the devotion that one enjoys for the Lord. So both these devotions are required, devotion to the Lord, because that's the one I'm seeking. And the devotion that I have for the Lord, the same amount of devotion I have for the teacher, because I don't look upon the teacher as separate from the Lord. <coughs> for such a noble soul or the great soul, all these arsaha, all that is revealed here in the text will become very clear. The words of the text of the scriptures will become very clear to the one who enjoys that devotion. The bhakti or the devotion is considered to be an important aspect, an important requirement for gaining this knowledge. <coughs> in the Vedantic text we do not find a great deal of discussion on this. It is taken for granted. Because Vedanta or the Upanishads follows the section dealing with the rituals, section dealing with meditation, section dealing with a certain way of life. Therefore we do not find any great deal of discussion of these things in Vedantic texts. But by the very invocation the author here concurs with the idea that devotion to the Lord and the devotion to the teacher are extremely important. The first verse expressed the devotion to the Lord. The second verse expresses here the devotion to the teacher. 
And thus the second verse says, Arsatopyadvayanandan Arsatopyadvayanandan Atita Dvaita Bhanataha Atita Dvaita Bhanataha Guruna Radhya Vedanta Guruna Radhya Vedanta Saram Vakshe Yathamati Saram Vakshe Yathamati Referring to his teacher, the author says, Arthatahabi Advayanandan. Apparently, the name of the teacher, of the author, the author is Sadananda Saraswati. And the name of his teacher must have been Advayananda Saraswati. So, referring to his teacher, he says, My teacher whose name is Advayananda. But it is not that his name alone is Advayananda. Arthatahabi Advayananda. Even in earth also, meaning, even the, uh, even in the meaning. So, my teacher is the one who justifies the very name that has been given to him. The names are always given. When you take a, when you take sannyasa diksha or any kind of diksha, the name is given by the teacher. On what basis does the teacher give the name? The teacher, generally speaking, gives a name in keeping with the, the person. So here he says, the name of my teacher is Advayananda. When my teacher fully justifies the very name. Advayascha aso anandahari Advayananda. So that which is Advaya as well as Ananda. What is Advaya? Advaya is that which is devoid of duality. So my teacher is the one whose nature is Advaya. One who is free from all the dualities. And one who is anandaha, one who is full and complete. So one who has discovered the self that is non-dual and discovered the self that is complete, and therefore he is the one who completely justifies his name, Advayananda. So every name has a meaning. Very often we just give the name. And very often the, there is no correspondence between the name and the, the person. So very often the name is given, you know, um, Lakshmi Pati, somebody may be said, you see. He is the lord of, goddess of wealth, and the fellow is a pauper, you know. So very often it happens that the name and the person really have no correspondence at all. A woman is named Sulochana, one having beautiful eyes, and then, you know, that may not be the case. So very often it happens that the name and the, uh, the, the personality really has sometimes no correspondence. Sometimes a wishful thinking, when you give name to a child, is wishful thinking. But here on the other hand, the name and the person, both of them, are completely in correspondence to one another, each other. Says, that shows his devotion. Arsatopyadvayanandan, my teacher. And then he uses plural, advayanandan. So there is a plural, the accusative plural. Even though teacher is one, he places that name in plural, showing the respect. So, generally speaking, it is not even usual to utter the name of the teacher. In the tradition, you don't utter the name of the teacher. Although he mentions, for example, whenever Shankaracharya writes, very rarely you find him mentioning the name of the teacher. He indicates the name somehow, but you do not directly even utter the name. It is said, Paroksha Priyayavahi Devaha. The great people, and the devatas and the gods, all of them are Paroksha Priyaha. They want an indirect mention, they do not like a direct mention. <coughs> but here, he utters the name all right, but places that in plural, showing his great reverence for the teacher. So the reverence for the teacher itself is very evident in his very expression that, my teachers who are, do justify completely the name. Why is it so? Advaita Bhanataha. Why do you say that your teacher justifies the name of Advayananda? One who is non-dual and one who is of the nature of ananda or fullness, how do you say that he justifies his name? Advaita Bhanataha. Atita Advaita Bhanataha. Bhanataha, because what is the nature of his awareness? Atita Advaita. So from his awareness, all the Dvaita or the duality has gone away. Atitam Gatam Dvaita Bhanam Yataha. The one from whom the awareness of the duality has completely gone away. 
How is it possible? How can the awareness of duality go away? The idea is that even though there is an apparent awareness of the duality, the teacher really knows the non-dual that is in and through the duality. As Bhagavad Gita says, Vidya Vinaya Sampanne Brahmane Gavihastini Sunichayiva Svapakecha Panditaha Samadarsinaha says Bhagavad Gita. That Panditaha, the wise men are Samadarsinaha. They only see Sama or the one. In one who may be a very learned person and they have a very learned and revered person. On the other hand, the other one may be an outcast. Or there may be a cow or an elephant or a dog or an outcast or a learned person. In all of them, the wise man sees one principle alone, one truth, one self alone. Thus it is recognized that no doubt the costume that each one wears is different. Each one has a different name and form. Each one wears a different costume. But the one wearing these costumes is one alone. The costume does not affect the one who is putting on the costume. Like an actor, he is not affected by the costume that he wears. Similarly also the self is not affected by the costume that he is wearing. So this body, mind, intellect, this upadi or this assembly is merely a costume that the self is wearing. An ignorant person only looks at the costume and that's all he knows. The wise man is the one who appreciates the costume all right, who also appreciates the body, mind, intellect, duality or the diversity of the trains, but in and through the diversity one also appreciates the non-diverse, the one in and through the many. The one that is without any, devoid of all the gunas and doshas, the self that is devoid of all the defects or all the attributes, all the limitations, that limitless self, one who appreciates in and through the apparent names and forms. In this manner it is said that from his awareness the duality has gone away. So even though there is drashti, pratiri, pratiri of duality, drashti of non-duality. Pratiti means perception of duality is there. But what is the drashti? What is the knowledge? That of non-duality. Just as when we see a reflection, or if there are a few mirrors and I stand in front of the mirrors, I may have the perception of many entities there. But what is my drashti? What is my knowledge? Knowledge is of one in spite of the apparent appearance of many. Because I know that the reflections are false. Appearance is false. So one, therefore, who has discovered the falsehood of the appearance of duality and one who appreciates the non-dual truth that is in and through the duality. The beauty about the non-dual is that it is in spite of duality. The non-dual is not in absence of duality. The non-dual is in spite of duality. And therefore, in spite of perceiving the duality, one who does not miss the non-dual, in spite of perceiving the names and forms of the ornaments, one does not miss the gold. On account of our fascination to the design and the form of the ornament, we sometimes miss the gold of which the ornament is made, and so also on account of our fascination with this name and form, we miss the very the entity, the principle that is functioning in and through the name and form. But my teacher is the one who never misses that who abides in the vision of the non-dual, which is in and through the duality. And therefore I say that he completely justifies his name. Nirasta samasta bheda jnanatvat From whom? From vision of, from whose vision? All the, the knowledge of the duality has gone. Meaning, no more the duality is given reality. The idea is that the duality is perceived all right, but it has lost all the reality for whom? And therefore, one who, one who appreciates a non-duality, one who abides in that. Guru Aradhya. Aradhya means worshipping. I worship these teachers of mine. How do I worship? Kayavang Manovihi Namaskar Gochari Kritya. I worship him by my mind, by my speech, and by my body. This is how I, I offer my salutation to him. I remember him. I worship him in my heart. The teacher is not in front of him, he is in the heart. So he offers the salutation of the teacher by his mind, by his words and by his body. 
Having done this, now I proceed to do what I have to do. Vedāndasāraṁ vakṣe yathāmati. Yathāmati, in keeping with my mati, in keeping with my knowledge or my ability, my understanding. Vedāndasāraṁ vakṣe. Vakṣe, I am now going to state the Vedāndasāraṁ. So, vakṣe means I am going to expound. I am going to now state or expound Vedāndasāraṁ. This text called Vedāndasāraṁ. Vedantanam saram. That which is saraha, the essence of all the Vedanta. What is Vedanta? Primarily Upanishad. The author himself will dis- define what is meant by Vedanta. But Vedanta means Upanishads, primarily. Source book of all the knowledge are the Upanishads. And among the Upanishads also, that which is sara or the essence. Because even the Upanishads also deal with many things. Of that, the author says, ah, we are only going to pick up here the sara of the essence, the essential part of the Upanishads. <coughs> Upanishads are called Shastram. Shastram is scripture. It is Moksha Shastram. Scripture dealing with Moksha or the liberation. And a scripture is the one that deals with all the aspects that, is in, that are required for liberation. And there were typically Upanishads, or Bhagavad Gita or Brahma Sutra, which you used to call scriptures, they describe the student, they describe also the approach of the student to the teacher, they also describe various forms of meditation which are required for preparation of the mind, and so many such other things are also described. Describe the whole creation in detail, and so all these aspects are dealt with in Upanishads. Here the author says that we are going to focus our attention on the sara or the very essence of the Upanishad. And what is the essence of all the upan- teaching of the Upanishads? Tattvamasi, that thou art. The teaching of the essence or the teaching of all the Upanishads is the non-dual. Revealing the identity between Jiva and Brahma. Revealing the identity between the individual self and Brahma, the self of all. <coughs> Revealing the fact that the self is complete or limitless. This is the essence of all the teaching. And that essence is what is going to be expounded in this text here. Yasminyate punarnyatavyam navasishyate What's the reason why you are only focusing your attention on the essence? Yasminyate nyatavyam navasishyate Knowing which, that nothing remains to be known. Thus you must have heard in Chandogya Upanishad also. Yena shrutam shrutam bhavadi amatam matam avignatam vignatam iti. That the, the father asked the son, when you went to the teacher, utatam adesham apraksha, did you ask for that teaching? Having heard which, nothing remains to be heard. Having thought of which, nothing remains to be thought of. Having known which, nothing remains to be known. Did you ask for the teaching? And the boy is flabbergasted. He says, can there be such a thing? Can there be such a thing knowing what, that, knowing which nothing remains to be known? How can it be? How can it be that by knowing one thing that you know everything? Then, I'm sure, no, I have not learned this from my teacher. I'm afraid that my teacher has not told me this. <clears throat> but how can it be that by knowing one thing that you know everything? Yathaya saumya eke enamurth pendena sarvam runmayam vijnyadam syat. O my dear one, eke enamurth pendena. By knowing one particle of clay, how everything made of clay is, is as well known. And so also by knowing the very essence of the whole creation, the essence of the whole life, the whole life is as well known. So there is this essence, there is this truth knowing which everything is as well known. And this is what everyone is seeking. Knowingly or unknowingly, everyone is seeking this truth. So, several Upanishads have this theme, like Mundaka Upanishad also. Kasmin Bhagavad Vijnade Saramidam Vijnatam Bhavadidhi. There also the t- student asks this question of the teacher, or revered sir, what is it? Knowing which, everything as well becomes known. Thus, this is, there is this natural curiosity or natural desire to know on the part of the human being. He wants to know the truth. 
is the nature of the intellect which wants to know the truth always, <clears throat> which is wedded to the truth. Therefore, everyone wants to know the truth of the life. And then we also have this misunderstanding within ourselves somehow, this hunch, that knowing which, everything as well becomes known. So author says, Vedanta Saram Vakshe. We are now going to expound the essence of the Vedanta, the Upanishads, knowing which, everything as well becomes known. <coughs> Vakshe Yathamati says, in keeping with my understanding, in keeping with my light, that shows the humility of the author. Also says, by saying that, I'm going to say that in keeping with my own understanding, keeping my own ability. He shows his own limitation, shows that the whole scripture is so profound that my limited intellect cannot really, cannot really dive so, dive so deep into the depths of the scriptures. <coughs> he says, I'm like a fish. Elsewhere, this verse is given that I'm like a fish. My teacher is like the ocean, and I am just like a fish. Even though my teacher has given me everything, <coughs> it is I who is limited in therefore. How much water can a fish drink? Even though the whole water, ocean full of water is there, fish can only drink a little water, and so also my teacher is like the ocean. His knowledge is like the ocean, but my, I am, my mind is like a fish, and therefore I could only grasp very limited, and therefore with my limited grasp, whatever I know, I will try to express in this text here. Yathamati shows this humility, doesn't show the fear. He's not afraid that somebody is going to question me or threaten me. It's not out of threat or fear that he says, out of humility he says that we are now going to expand this text in keeping with our understanding. <coughs> so this is saying, having said this now, The purpose for which now the text is begun. Vedanta Saram, the name of the text has all been given. The subject matter of the text also has been given. That this text, the subject is going to deal with, that which is the essence of all the Vedanta. And now the author proceeds to describe what is meant by Vedanta. Says now, this the third passage here. Now the rest of the text is in the form of the prose. <coughs> Vedanto Nama Vedanto Nama Upanishad Pramanam Tadupakarini Shari Raka Sutra Dinicha Vedanto Nama Upanishad Pramanam Vedanto Nama what is known as Vedanta, or what is called Vedanta, is Upanishad Pramanam. So question is, what is Vedanta? It says Upanishad Pramanam. Because the word Vedanta is understood to be a whole body of literature. <coughs> so by the word Vedanta, we understand the whole body of literature. And this author wants to make very clear as to what is the principal meaning of the word Vedanta, and what is the secondary meaning of the word Vedanta? So primary meaning of the word Vedanta is Upanishad. <coughs> Upanishad Pramanam. Upanishad Eva Pramanam. Upanishad Pramanam. So Upanishad itself is Pramanam. Pramanam means Pramakaranam. Pramanam means the means of valid knowledge. Prama, Prama means valid knowledge. And Pramana means the means of valid knowledge. So Upanishad, which is Pramanam. So this word Pramanam you must have heard millions of times. Very important word. Pramanam means of knowledge. For example, eyes are Pramanam with reference to color. Ears are Pramanam, the valid means of knowledge with reference to sound. Our tongue the faculty of taste is pramanam, the valid means of knowledge, with reference to taste. So what is the peculiarity about pramanam? Pramanam, or the valid means of knowledge, is always unique. 
there cannot be more than one pramanam for a given thing. For example, for the knowledge of color, eyes are pramanam, meaning eyes are the unique means of knowledge which give us the knowledge of color. In the other, you cannot question or contradict the knowledge produced by the eyes with reference to color. When I say that this is red color or orange color, you cannot question it. So wait a minute, my eyes say that this shirt is red, but my mind, I think it cannot be red, it must be yellow. Or my skin says, no, no, it is not red color, it is yellow color. No, your skin cannot say that. Even your mind also cannot say that because the only means of knowledge available to us for the knowledge of color is eyes. And therefore, that is why it is called pramanam. If a thing can be known by more than that means it is not pramanam. Pramanam is always the unique means of knowledge. The knowledge generated by which is valid, free from doubts, errors, vagueness, which knowledge cannot be questioned, which knowledge cannot be negated, which knowledge cannot be improved upon. So that means which gives such knowledge is called pramanam. <coughs> so we are quite familiar with that. Eyes, all our organs of perception are pramanam. As best as we know, there are five kinds of objects in the world. Shabdas, Parsha, Rupa, Rasa, Gandha. The sound, the touch, the color, the taste, the smell. And we have corresponding organs of perception which give us the knowledge of each one of the corresponding objects. Similarly also, what is Pramanam or what is the valid means of knowledge with reference to Vedanta Sara or with reference to the self? Says Upanishad is a Pramanam. The five organs of perception are Pramanam. So perception is Pramanam. Valid means of knowledge for revealing the objects that are perceptible. Anumanam inference also is a Pramanam for revealing something which is not immediately perceptible but which can be inferred. Like we infer the presence of fire when we perceive the smoke because wherever the smoke is the fire must be and therefore when we perceive fire we know that we, there must be, wherever we perceive smoke, we know that there must be fire there. But can the self be perceived? Or can the self be inferred? The answer is no. Self or the Atma cannot be perceived. Therefore it is said, avang manasa gocharam. That which cannot be objectified by the mind and that which cannot be described by words is the self. And therefore, our organs of perception cannot perceive the self because it is the very illuminator of the organs of perception. Self is that because of which the organs perceive and therefore they cannot perceive the self. The self of the Atma is the one because of which the mind thinks and therefore the mind cannot objectify the self. And therefore the means of knowledge available at our disposal are not competent to reveal the self. Then what is the valid means of knowledge for revealing the nature of self? Upanishad. This is a body of words, which is the revealed text. So Upanishads are part of the Vedas, which are revealed texts, and therefore the words which are the Upanishads, or the words of the Upanishads, become the pramanam, the valid means of knowledge for revealing the true nature of the self. <coughs> but Swamiji, you just said that the self cannot be revealed by words. And how do you say that Upanishads, which are words, they become the pramanam or the means of knowledge for the self? When self or Brahman or Atma cannot be comprehended by words, cannot be described by the words, how do you say that the Upanishads, which are the form of words, that they are the pramanam or means of knowledge for the self? How is it so? <coughs> and this will be clarified. This we have discussed also in a number of times in the past, that the words of the Upanishads, what do they do? They only remove the various notions born of ignorance. Atad dharma dhyasaha. The problem here is, it is not that the Atma or the Self is unknown to us. 
It is not the self is hidden. Atma or the self is self-revealing. And therefore, you do not require anything to reveal the self. So the problem is, this color, for example, is not self-revealing. And therefore, we require eyes to reveal the color. The sound is not self-revealing. And therefore, we require ears to reveal the sound. But Atma is not like that. Atma or the self is self-revealing, self-effulgent. And therefore, we do not require any means of knowledge to reveal the self. It is already revealed. We already know it. As what? As I, I, I. And therefore, the self is known. Then what is the role of Upanishad? Why do you call Upanishad the Pramanam? The self is known all right, but then it is known wrongly or falsely. There is what we call a dhyaropa, a superimposition upon the self. I know the self all right, but then I know it falsely. Just as a rope is super, that is a snake is superimposed upon the rope, and a rope is taken to be the self, and so the rope is, I mean snake is, rope is taken to be the snake, and so also the self here is taken to be a limited entity. So the knowledge of the self is a different kind of a knowledge. It is not the knowledge similar to the knowledge of a part or a cloth or an object. It is the knowledge of the very subject, which is self-revealing, self-shining, but about which the misconceptions prevail, about which various notions obtain, about which various conclusions are made. So about the self, various false conclusions are made. And what the words the Upanishads do is to reveal the falsity of these conclusions and thus remove the notions that are obtaining about the self and thus clear the ground for knowing the self as it is. So what Adhyaropa is there or superimposition is there, the superimposition is removed by the words of the Upanishads and that is how the self is known as it is. Whereas presently, it is known, not as it is, it is known wrongly or falsely. <coughs> and therefore, the words, the Upanishad, are the pramanam, the valid means of knowledge for revealing the true nature of the self. <coughs> this is very important. Therefore, he says, the author says, Upanishad is the primary meaning of the word Vedanta. If Upanishads were not revealed the text, if Upanishads were texts which are composed by a human being, then whatever is composed by the human mind is always going to be limited by the limitation of the human mind. Therefore it is said that Vedas and therefore Upanishads are not composed texts, they are revealed texts, revealed by God himself and therefore it does not have any limitation of the human intellect, therefore we look upon Upanishads as Pramanam and therefore Vedanta nama, the meaning of the word Vedanta in a primary sense is Upanishad. <coughs> Depends on how you understand the word Upanishad. Interesting. <coughs> the word Upanishad itself has a meaning. As you know, every word can be traced to its root, and the word Upanishad is traced to the root Sad. And to that root Sad, are added the prefixes upa and ni. So what Upanishad has three elements, upa, ni and sad. <coughs> the prefix upa is in the sense of samipya, in the sense of vicinity. So Upanishad therefore is the knowledge of that which is close. Upa means that which is close or in the vicinity. So Upanishad therefore means knowledge of that which is close, in close proximity. And when that closeness does not have any qualification, when it is unqualified close, Upa here means that which is unqualified close, close, closeness without qualifications. And what is, what is it which is close without any qualification? The very self. And therefore, in the word Upanishad, the prefix upa indicates the self which is in proximity, which is close, closer than the closest. 
So really speaking, the primary meaning of the word Upanishad is knowledge. Primary meaning of the word Upanishad is not the text. Primary meaning of the word Upanishad is knowledge. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of Upa, that which is closed, namely the self. What kind of knowledge? That is revealed by the other prefix Ni. Ni means what? Nishchitam Gnanam. Ni here means Nishchaya. <coughs> Nishchaya means the firm or the ascertained knowledge. So Upa and Ni mean the ascertained knowledge of the Self. <coughs> what does this knowledge do? That is what is revealed by the root Sad. You must have heard this. The root Sad has three meanings. Gati, Visharanam, Avasadhanam. The root Sad in Sanskrit has three meanings. Gati in the sense of taking me somewhere. Visharanam in the sense of Shithili Karanam, loosening something. Avasadhanam in the sense of destruction, destroying something. So interestingly, interestingly enough, that which is known, this knowledge which is called Upanishad, takes me somewhere, it loosens something and it destroys something. So first thing that happens by listening to Upanishad, by listening to the scriptures, is loosening. Loosening what? The reality that I am giving to the samsara, reality that I am giving to the, the, the happiness that is coming from the sense objects. So I think that the samsara of the world has to offer me real happiness, real achievement. And as I understand, I slowly and slowly, that reality that is given to the universe, slowly and slowly goes away. This is the, that is how the bonds are loosened. At the moment there is a tremendous fascination or attraction to the world. Because I look upon the world and the objects of the world as a source of happiness. I look upon them as a source of peace and solitude. I, at the moment, look upon them as that which can give me refuge. So today I am seeking refuge from the world and from the objects and achievements of the world. As I recognize the limitations and then I recognize that they are mithya or unreal, slowly and slowly, the hold that the world has over me, the dependence at the moment that I experience of the world, the world at the moment is capable of disturbing me. When something happens out there, I get disturbed or upset. Or when something happens out there, I find myself happy. At the moment I find that my happiness and unhappiness are determined not so much by me, but by the world, by the people, by the situations, by the happenings. Why is it so? Because I look upon the world as real. I think that the world gives me happiness, the world gives me unhappiness. <coughs> as I understand the nature, as I listen to the scriptures, and I understand the nature of the world, I realize that the world is what it is. It is neither a source of happiness nor the source of unhappiness. That the world is not real as it is. There is something which gives reality to the world or the world derives its reality from something else. And as I understand that, slowly and slowly, that hold that the samsara has upon me becomes loosened. <coughs> then alone my mind becomes free. Any form of knowledge is possible only when the mind is free. When does my mind become, when, when can I gain this knowledge? Only when my mind is free. Free from what? Free from likes and dislikes. Free from reactions. Free from dependence. Free from the impact that the world and the situations has upon me. Otherwise my mind is all the time filled. By world I mean different people, situations, events. To the extent that I discover the limitations of falsehood, to that extent my mind becomes free from the, the impact that the world has upon me. <clears throat> Thus the mind becomes free from what we call likes and dislikes, raga and dvesha. The mind enjoys what we call vairagya or dispassion and objectivity. Because of likes and dislikes, my mind is not objective. At the moment, my mind is colored and therefore I am not able to appreciate things the way they are. I superimpose, I color the things and then see them. And as slowly my mind becomes objective, then 
I am able to appreciate what the scriptures have revealed. Then alone I am able to appreciate the true nature of my own self. And then, that's how Gamayadi, the second thing that happens, first is Visharanam, loosening, loosening of this bondage. Second thing that happens is, the Avasadhanam, destruction of the ignorance. <coughs> the ignorance is destroyed as a result of listening to the scriptures. And third is Gamayadi, Brahma Gamayadi, when the ignorance is removed, then there is discovery of the fact that the self is Brahman or the self is limitless. And never I am taken to the limitlessness, I am taken to the fullness as though by this knowledge. So the primary meaning of the word Upanishad is knowledge. Which knowledge? Knowledge that reveals the identity of the self and Brahman. And that is Pramana. That knowledge is the real evidence with reference to the true nature of the self. So the author says, Vedanto Nama Upanishad Pramanam. What is the primary meaning of the word Vedanta? Is that Brahma Vidya or the knowledge revealing the identity of the self and Brahman? And what is the Pramanam or what is the means for gaining that knowledge? Upanishad. The text called Upanishad is then the means for gaining that knowledge. So understand that Pramanam or the primary means of knowledge with reference to self is that Jnana Vritti, that knowledge that reveals the identity of the self in Brahman, and Upanishad, which is the text Upanishad. They are also called Upanishad in a secondary meaning, because the text, the words of the text, are become means for revealing that knowledge, or for creating that knowledge, and therefore the text Upanishad also is the secondary meaning of the word Upanishad. <coughs> So Vedanta Nama Upanishad Pramanam. What is known as Vedanta is nothing but the Upanishad Brahma Vidya, which is Pramanam. Upanishad Pramanam. Pramakaranam. That Brahma Vidya or the knowledge of Brahman, knowledge of self is the real Pramanam, real means of knowledge. <coughs> and the text Upanishad also is called Vedanta inasmuch as the text is the means for gaining that knowledge. And thus the author makes himself clear that the primary meaning of the word Vedanta is Upanishad. Upanishad meaning Brahma Vidya and secondly Upanishad meaning the text which appears at the end of the Vedas. Tat upakarini sharirka sutra dinicha. And also then Upanishads have been expounded by many teachers. Particularly Shankaracharya has has written what we call Bhashya, the commentaries upon the Upanishads. And these commentaries are very much necessary for all, for all of us. Because Upanishads themselves are extremely difficult to comprehend. What is revealed by the Upanishads being extremely difficult to comprehend by an ordinary mind. There is a need for the aid in the form of commentaries by the great teachers. And therefore, the Shankara Bhashya or the commentary upon the Upanishad written by Shankaracharya also is included in Vedanta. Tat upakarani Shariraka Sutra Denicha Shariraka Sutra That is called Brahma Sutra. So another name of Brahma Sutra is Shariraka Sutra. <coughs> what is Shariraka? This also word you must know because this word occurs. Brahma Sutra is what we know. What is Brahma Sutra? Those who expound Brahman. The word Sutra, Sutra means a thread. Sutra means a thread. And Brahma Sutra means that, that thread, in which is a, which, which, the thread in which the flowers of the mantras of the Upanishad are woven. So Brahma Sutra is compared to a beautiful garland of flowers which beautiful flowers are picked from the gardens of the Upanishads. There are many Upanishads occurring in the Vedas. These Upanishads are very beautiful mantras and these mantras are compared to beautiful flowers. And therefore, Badarayana, the author of Brahma Sutra, picked these beautiful flowers from the garden of the Upanishads and made from that a beautiful garland with reference to sutra or by, with the help of a thread, 
And therefore, Brahma Sutra is a garland from which, in which the, the flowers of the beautiful mantras of the garden of Upanishad are curled and made into a garland. <coughs> the same Brahma Sutra also is called Sharirika Sutra. Because what is the subject matter of Brahma Sutra? You know very well Brahma Sutra is a text consisting of sutra of the aphorisms which explain the meaning of the Upanishads. And what is the subject matter of Brahma Sutra? Shari Raka. So, Shariram Eva Shariram. This body is called Sharira. And since this body is subject to birth and death, and body is limited and non-self, therefore, Shariram, Shariram Eva Shariram, that very Sharira is also called Shariraka. Because body is Kutsitam, something that is not the self. Something that is to be discarded as though or known to be non-self and therefore Sharira alone is called Shariraka and Tatra Bhavaha Jeevaha Sharirakaha. Shariraka means the Jeeva. The self that as though obtains the body is called Shariraka. So Brahma Sutras are called Shariraka Sutra. The aphorisms which expound the nature of the self. So Shariraka Sutra means this whole scripture called Brahma Sutra consisting of more than 500 aphorisms which expound the true nature of the self. So the Brahma Sutra also is called Vedanta. <coughs> and subsequently further also Bhagavad Gita also is called Vedanta. Because it is Srimad Bhagavad Gita so Upanishad so. Even Bhagavad Gita which has 18 chapters and 700 verses that Bhagavad Gita also is considered to be the essence of all the Vedas they are also looked upon as Upanishads. So Bhagavad Gita also are included in Vedanta. Brahma Sutra also is Vedanta. And therefore, we have these three primary texts, the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, and the Brahma Sutra. These three are called Prasthanatraya, or the primary texts of the Vedanta. They form the very basis of Ved- that is called Vedanta. And then the commentary is written by the teachers upon these texts. Shankaracharya has written Bhashya, the commentary on all these three, on Upanishad, Brahma Sutra, as well as Bhagavad Gita. And therefore, the Bhashya, the commentary of Shankaracharya, also is included in Vedanta. And then to explain this Bhashya of the Shankaracharya, many other texts are written. <coughs> like Sankshepa Shariraka, is that which expounds the Brahma Sutra Bhashya in brief. And then Khandana Khandana Khadya, and then Advaita Siddhi, and then so many other texts are written. All of these are also, and then various commentaries are also written upon Shankara Bhashya. All of these are also included in Vedanta, and many other texts. Thus Vedanta subsequently is a whole body of literature which expounds, which expounds the identity between Jiva and Brahma. So the author here says that Vedanta means Upanishad in the primary sense, and in the secondary sense it means Brahma Sutra, Bhagavad Gita, Tad Upakarini. Tad Upakarini means Vedanta Vichara Anukulani. All those other texts also which help us to understand Upanishads, they are also called Vedanta. So Upanishads are called Vedanta, and rest of the texts which help us understand the Upanishads are also called Vedanta. <coughs> so in the very first month's passage here, the author defines what is meant by what is known as Vedanta. Okay. Then, continuing further, in the fourth passage, it is said, Asya Vedanta Prakaranatvad Vedanta Prakaranatvad Tadiyaihi Eva Tadiyaihi Eva Anubandhaihi Tadvatta Siddhe Nate Prasag Alochaniyaha Asya Vedanta Prakaranatva. This text called the Vedanta Sara is called Prakaranam. Prakaranam means a chapter, or it's also called a treatise. So this text called Vedanta Sara is Prakaranam. So look upon the Vedanta 
as a whole scripture and from that whole scripture the Vedanta Sara here deals with one aspect of the scripture. For example, we have the whole text on physics in which there are different chapters. Each chapter is called Prakaranam because the chapter deals with one aspect of the whole text. And similarly also, this text Vedanta Sara deals with one aspect of what is known as Vedanta or Upanishads. Not all the aspects. Prakaranam is called Shastraika Desha Sambaddham. So that which is connected to one aspect of the scripture. Shastra Karyantarasthitam and the purpose of which also is the same as that is the purpose of the Shastra. That is called Prakarana Grantha or the treatise. In short, a text that expounds one portion of the entire scripture is called Prakaranam. So he says that we are not going to deal with all the topics of the subject matters dealt with Vedanta. We are only going to deal with one topic or one subject matter dealt in the Vedanta and that is the subject matter revealing the identity between Jiva and Brahma. <coughs> Asya Vedanta Prakranatvat. Since this is a Prakranam or a section of the Vedanta, this deals with one section of Vedanta. Tadiyaiheva Anubandhaihi Tadvatta Siddhehe There are what we call Anubandha. Anubandha means the preliminary questions or preliminary requisites. We'll discuss it tomorrow. That for the study of any text, there are certain preliminary questions that arise in our own mind. Before you study a book, before you study any text, certain preliminary questions will arise in the mind. What is the first question? What is, who is qualified? To am I qualified to study this text? When somebody gives a book, or when you go to a bookshop, before you buy a book, these questions arise in your mind. But the first question that may arise in you is, what is the subject matter? If you are looking at a book on, on psychology, in a bookshop, you will necessarily go to that section which deals with books, which displays books on psychology. And you don't bother to go to the rest of the bookshop. Unless, of course, you are browsing and you have nothing else to do and then that's why you can go around, okay. But generally, when you go to a bookshop or a library, we go to that particular section which deals with the subject matter in which we are interested. So, primary question or the first question that arises with reference to study of any text is, what is Vishaya? What is subject matter? Second question that may arise in our mind is, am I qualified to study that? Is this text written or addressed to me? I may be a student of physics all right, but then there are physics of different levels. Physics that is studied in high school, physics that is studied in college, physics that is studied in postgraduate, and whatever. So, Adhikari, who is the one who is qualified to study the text? That's the next question that arises. And we pick a book which we consider is useful to us. Not only we pick a book about which, the subject of which is of interest to us, but then we pick that book of which we are for which we are qualified. So, Vishaya means subject matter is the first question that arises. Adhikari, who is the one who is qualified to study the text? Or who is the one who will most benefit from the study of the text? That is called Adhikari, the fit student. That becomes the second question. Third is Prayojanam. What are we going to gain as a result of study of the text? Suppose I study this. Suppose I study Vedanta, all right. What do I get by that? Prayojanam. So Prayojanam means the purpose. What is the purpose of studying the text? That is also an important question that arises. And fourthly, what is known as Sambandha. What do I have to do after gaining the knowledge of this text, after studying the text, what should I do in order to achieve the objective? <coughs> that is called Sambandha. So these are, these four are known as preliminary questions or preliminary requisites, which form an invariable part of a textbook. Therefore, it is tradition to mention this anubandha or these four factors right at the beginning of any text. And then alone, any intelligent person will proceed to study the text. The idea is that an intelligent person will not want to un undertake any study unless the person is clear about these four factors. And so the author says that these four factors 
of this text are the same as the four factors of Vedanta. And therefore, we need not separately review them. We will continue the discussion tomorrow. <coughs> Om Purnamadah Purnamidam Purnanat Purnamudachyade Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnameva Vashashyade Om Shanti 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 Shankaram Shankaracharyam Keshavam Badarayanam Sutra Bhashya Krutau Vande Bhagavantau Punah Punah Ishvaro Guru Ratmedi Murti Veda Vibhagine Vyoma Vadvyapta Dehaya Dakshina Murtaye Namaha Om Shanti 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 Harihi Om Shri Gurubhyo Namaha Harihi Om